Welcome, everybody, to this uh, New Year's edition of the IFS Zooms In. And I'm delighted this week to be joined by Professor Sir Angus Deaton, who is uh, with us at the IFS running a very big multi-year review looking at inequalities and where we are with inequalities, not just in income, but in health, wealth, education, and all sorts of other dimensions of inequality, and with whom we'll be writing over the next couple of years uh, some very big outputs, uh, looking, we hope, at uh, some of the solutions to some of the more problematic inequalities that we face. But in the last couple of weeks, um, Angus and some of us at the IFS have been writing some things about what's been happening recently, both to inequality in the United States and also to the more recent impacts of COVID over here in the UK. And Angus, in your um, most recent piece on what's been happening in the US, you've got some very striking concerns about the the role of um, the role of big companies, the role of big pharma, big tech companies, as well as concerns about the U.S. Um, health system, which of course is very different to that here, and the big gaps between those with and without um, uh, university degrees. A whole series of major concerns uh, in the way that you write about the level of inequality um, in the U.S., but it's not something that. Um, certainly over on this side of the Atlantic, has been very um, very present in the discussion of what's been happening in, uh, in Washington. Uh, we've just had uh, the, the mob, as it were, storming the, 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 the Capitol. Um, we've had a very divided um, election. We've still got, uh, uh, you've still got the um, pandemic over there, just as we have it over here. Um, to what extent do you think inequalities uh, are part of what's been driving the extraordinary politics that we've seen uh, over in the US recently? Well, I think you have to be careful about the sort of simplistic and deterministic arguments that you know these people are rioting because of inequality or they're rioting because of the pandemic. But we've got this sort of unholy stew, which has many, many parts in it, and it is. It has struck me um, to, and with some surprise, that the reporting of the events in the Capitol and the so-called transfer, or we hope, eventually peaceful transfer of power, has been taken as a completely separate event from the pandemic. And um, I think the level of um, unhappiness, the level of tension which, you know, in a longer term, you can trace back to a lot of different inequalities, which I think are messing us about, um, has been greatly heightened by the people, by the fact that people's lives are at risk, and also by the politicization of that. So you've created this divide um, between people who believe this um, virus is sort of a hoax. It's a pretty amazing thing to believe at this stage, um, and those who are terrified of it. And that has broken along political lines too, which is quite extraordinary, but not unprecedented. Um, I was looking the other day, you know, in 1900, when the U.S. was the rich, already the richest country in the world, and where there'd been a vaccine for smallpox for more than 100 years, 
the U.S. had higher smallpox death rates than any other rich country in the world. So we've sort of been here before. That's extraordinary. And as you say, I mean, we, we, we see it a little bit here as well. The, the, um, the, the, the political uh, diverge, the, the correlation between people's politics and their views on all sorts of things um, has been growing stronger, hasn't it, in the, in the US over the last 20 or 30 years. The more that you, once you know someone's view on, on one thing, you're more likely to have a pretty good grasp of where they are on, on other bits of political uh, spectrum. Yes, that seems to be the case, and it's uh, the loss of any sense of uh, socially accepted truth um, by the majority of the population seems like a really, really, really serious loss, and I don't know where we go from this. I mean, you started out talking about, you know, something that um, is probably receding into the background a little bit, which is the need to think seriously about what big companies are doing to us, and handling the tech giants and all the rest of it. it it's clear that in the last few days here, um, they have begun to realize that they may have been riding a tiger um, through their enormous political contributions and that this has helped contribute to the crisis that we have right now. Um, often you get these corporate giants who talk a good line, but they don't do very much. Um, but this time they're really threatening to cut off campaign financing and that, if it's systematically carried through, would make a large difference. And that's very different, I think, from what we see in the UK. One of the things that really struck me reading your uh, piece of a, a, a week or so ago about inequality in the US was how actually a lot of it didn't ring terribly true in the UK. I mean, we... We don't have quite the epidemic of, um, of deaths from opioid abuse that you refer to in the US. We don't have this terrible health uh, divide in access to health uh, that you have in, in, in the US. But also, I don't think we have this enormous power of big, um, big tech and big pharma over politics. But, but, but maybe I'm being a little, little naive on that. I mean, do, do you think this is a particularly US phenomenon? Um, that's a really good question, and I wish I knew the answer to that, but I think you should beware. <laughs> I think that's sort of the answer to that, that a lot of what happens here uh, makes its way across the Atlantic um, sooner or later. The drug epidemic here now is largely an illegal one, so it's no longer being fueled by the medical system, and so you face that problem in exactly the same way that we do. And the numbers in Britain are still much lower than America, except perhaps in Scotland, um, where there's really very serious um, drug epidemic going on. Um, and so I think it really could happen to you um, in terms of um, the deaths from opioids. We unfortunately don't know in Britain what the educational divide of mortality is because the data are not collected. And that's, I think, a major lacuna in the statistical system in the UK. It would be really nice to know um, what's happening um, along that particular divide. As to big tech, one, one of the things that I've been thinking about recently is that there's a lot more lobbying goes on in Brussels than seems to go on in London because it's the EU that is the primary front for these discussions of, um, you know, um, 
antitrust law and all the rest of it. And that gets a lot of publicity. But you've just left the EU. <laughs> and I would have thought that those companies are going to decamp, those lobbying groups are going to decamp to London. And I actually, reading the British press, and you would know better than I on this, that um, there was a real sense coming out of Downing Street that one of the reasons for getting out of Brexit was to give the government its opportunity to play special favors and do nice things for favorite companies in Britain. Is that not true? If it is true, it's a real worry. I'm not quite sure that's how they would put it, but I think there is a, um, <laughs> there, there is a desire. I think, yes, I think you're right. There is a desire to free uh, the government up to, um, as they would see it, provide uh, help for um, you know, British champions or to provide subsidies to get companies to invest in particular um, areas or to do more to bring in um, foreign investment you, uh, under rules that are difficult to do within the European Union, and actually having worked within government, it, it, it is something that, that that worries me. I have to say because um, not having any external constraint on that behaviour uh, does make a whole series of individual decisions which can look politically desirable because you can see there might be votes in them or indeed. Uh, campaign finance in them, um, each one difficult to avoid. And the, the consequences in total could be, uh, as you've seen in the US, quite uh, you know, quite, quite dramatic. Um, but you've mentioned, um, I, I don't think we can move off this without saying a little bit more about your work on what you call deaths of despair, which not all of the listeners will necessarily be um, aware of, and you, you talk, you, you mentioned just now this uh, this extraordinary um, pharmaceutical company inspired um, or created problem of deaths from opioid abuse um, in the US. So perhaps you could just say a little bit about um, what that is, because I think it will come as a, a, a shock to a, a number of people. Quite what's been happening. Yeah, this is what um, my book with Anne Case, which is called Deaths of Despair and Future Capitalism, is about. Um, about five years ago, maybe a little more, we discovered that uh, among people in middle age, there really was quite a rapid rise in deaths that shouldn't be taking place. So that um, overall, you know, life expectancy, which has been rising for 100 years, um, reached its peak in 2014 and it actually has not reached that level again. Um, and you have something similar in Britain in that life expectancy growth, which has been pretty um, reliable, has stalled um, for a bunch of years. It's not actually going down. And in the last year, in 2019, it actually had a welcome upward tick, the highest upward tick since about 2010, I think. But there's nothing like that happening here. And you've got this situation in which large numbers of people are dying about 160,000 a year from suicides, um, from um, drug overdoses, um, and from alcoholic liver diseases, which are all forms of sort of self-destruction in one way or another. And those numbers fell a little bit um, a couple of years ago. They came back again last year, and the drug epidemic seems to be picking up even more rapidly since the middle of last year and continuing into the pandemic. And what's happening is all these deaths are among people who don't have a college degree. Here, it takes four years to get a college degree, to get a bachelor's degree. 
and about a third of the population currently have a bachelor's degree and two-thirds do not. And the, once you've got a bachelor's degree, you're pretty much exempt uh, from these deaths, from these deaths of despair. And of course, what's bothering us is during the pandemic, um, these divisions are getting even worse <laughs> because the BA people, the educated people, are much more likely to sit at home, um, to be able to work from home without interruptions of their salaries and without any risk to their lives. Whereas a lot of people without BA are in service industries, they're working on the front lines, they might be working in meatpacking and transportation in a lot of, um, and in the health sector, in fact. And, and so these low salary people are either lost their jobs or they kept their jobs at the risk of their lives. And so these divisions we've been writing about, like many other things with COVID, have been um, terribly um, widened. And so that worries us that when eventually COVID goes away, as we hope, you know, in a year or so it will, um, then we'll be left with, you know, even wider gaps than the gaps that were already there and that we've been writing about. And I think those um, those COVID-related divisions are something we really worry about here as well. I mean, we've seen um, deaths uh, from covid uh, being at least as socially graded uh, as deaths were before. And we know that anyway, people from poorer backgrounds are much less likely to live long lives than those who are better off and better educated. And we've seen that again with COVID. And again, we've seen you know, who are the people in the UK least likely to be able to work from home. They're the, the lowest paid and in general, the lowest educated. And it's again, completely graded from the lowest earning tenth of the population to the highest earning tenth as you move up that scale you get more and more uh, bigger and bigger fraction who are able to work at home and the um, the difference between the top and the bottom is really very high we've also seen as you'd expect the loss job losses and the furlough much higher among people from uh, lower income lower earning backgrounds um, i don't think we've quite seen um the uh, the divergence between those with and without college degrees, university degrees that you've seen in the US, clearly those with higher education in the UK earn more than those with lower education. And they have a, often a lot of the other things that go with higher earning jobs, more in the way of job security and benefits associated with that. But you've also traced these big differences in things like health, um, marriage, social interaction, and all sorts of other important elements of living a good life, where I think your work has suggested that that gap didn't exist to a huge extent 40, 50 years ago, but now is the the biggest dividing line in American society? Well, I think it, it um, reasonably could be thought of that way. There's one thing you haven't mentioned, which is a huge issue here for all dividing lines, which is race. And obviously the racial issues in the US are different from what they are in Britain. It's not like you don't have them, but they work in different um, dimensions. And, you know, before all the chaos that's happened last week at the election, we had a summer of um, racial unrest, a very serious um, racial unrest in the US. And that cross cuts um, with these issues um, of health and so on. I mean, African-Americans have always had lower life expectancy than whites. Um, and um, they're suffering particularly badly during the pandemic. Um, that we know. We don't know so much about um, 
the income or educational basis of people who are dying during the pandemic, but we will find that out as we go. I, I'm not sure. I mean, I, let me make two comparisons with the UK, which I think are important here. Um, one is that um, Britain is still a sort of gentler place than America is. It might be an odd word to use over recent years. But you still have a, a fairly elaborate and well-developed social safety system so that, you know, as you and your colleagues have written about, um, even though people at the bottom are doing relatively worse than the labor market, people at the top do much better, the benefit system um, and tax system untangles that to some degree. So you don't, and there's none of that here. So if you're doing badly in the labor market, you're doing badly, full stop. Um, we don't, I, I still just come back to this thing about education. It, you don't really have the data which allow us to grade deaths by education. Um, and that would be something that we'd be very interested to see. I mean, the, the data you refer to, which I know are basically looking across um, more deprived and less deprived areas. And that's a very useful way to go, but it doesn't get us at what's happening to individuals in the same way that if you can look at their death certificates and know a lot more about them. Yeah, there's so much in, in, in what you say there. I mean, as you say, the, um, the, the, the race or ethnic differences are very different between the UK and the US. But again, one of the striking aspects of this pandemic, at least of the first wave of it, I don't know if we've got... Um, data from the most recent wave was very different rates of mortality among those from different ethnic backgrounds in the UK, partly or significantly reflecting the different sorts of roles that they play in society. So a lot of black African uh, men, a lot of black women work in social care and the health service, very high fractions, actually. Um, a lot of uh, a, a lot of um, uh, Pakistani and Bangladeshi men uh, work in uh, self-employed, maybe working in uh, driving taxis and, and buses and so on. Uh, and these are risky occupations, and we've seen very high levels of death rates among some of those very particular ethnic groups. And, and, and you know, maybe this is something that, uh, you know, as we come out of this, we will begin to recognise the contribution that uh, some of these groups make to these vital um, services and indeed uh, the, the importance of some of these vital services. I don't know whether we'll see changes as we um, as, as, as we come out of uh, as we come out of this. But you've also um, I mean you've also kind of picked up the, the the very important role of the and different role of the welfare state. And I suppose it's 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 a genuine. Um, it's a genuine curiosity, I think, to those of us sitting in the UK who have never lived in the US, I mean, how a society works uh, where there isn't um, a real safety net. I mean, whether that be a safety net in terms of um, income if you become unemployed, but also in the health system where there isn't a proper safety net in, 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 in the health system. And I mean, genuinely, it's hard, I think, for us to quite conceive how that works. Well, it doesn't work very well, to the answer. <laughs> I mean, I think, you know, one of the reasons we don't have it is not that people don't want it. We're not that different from Europeans and other countries that have much better systems. It Once again, a lot of it comes back to race. And there's always been this feeling in the U.S. whenever we move towards a deeper welfare state that whites don't want to give benefits for blacks. And, 
you know, in the discussions around the time when the National Health Service was formed in Britain, usually after the Second World War, um, similar discussions went on here. Uh, and in the end, they were broken um, by the who were then Southern Democrats, they would not be Southern Republicans, but um, representatives from the South who just would not go along with this. Um, and even the Social Security that we had, um, the pension system, for instance, um, that was designed to exclude most black workers, not by name, um, but by excluding certain occupations, agriculture, for instance, in which blacks were heavily represented. I think coming back to the COVID and race, though, um, I find the British data very interesting. And I wish I knew what the baseline death rates were, which unfortunately we don't really know. Um, and the story about occupations is a little odd because it obviously happens here too. But for instance, women are very much more heavily in occupations, um, in health occupations, in occupations at risk, are the things you were just talking about. And we see no elevation in their death rates here at all. And there are completely parallel death rates between men and women for COVID. I mean, women die at lower rates than men, um, but the, the fluctuations over this epidemic have been remarkably similar. And my feeling is that you don't see very much in the UK either, but I haven't looked at those data very carefully. Um, not, 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 not by gender. You're right, but but very definitely by uh, by ethnic background, which appears to be related to um, uh, to occupation, at least to at least to some degree. Yeah. Um, again, I mean, your your description of some of the scale of these issues in the US, I mean, it remains quite shocking, even to a you know society like the UK, which is relatively unequal by European standards. Um, but coming back to the, the the politics of this, you've written about the extent to which the incoming president, Joe Biden, has a set of advisors, including economic advisors, who are really quite focused on some of these issues around um, inequality. Do you, I mean, is, is it your sense that uh, this is something, this is a set of issues where we'll get significant action over the next um, few years. Is this, is this something that incoming President Biden is really uh, driven by? Or, uh, or, or are, and indeed, are there things that one could do over a four-year presidential term that would make a big difference? Yes, I mean, I, I think so. And I think the commitment here is genuine. Um, you know, Biden is perhaps the last of... Um, or his traces of the old democratic politicians who came out of the unions um, and were supported by the white working class as well as by African-Americans. So he has that advantage. And there's no doubt at all that people like Janet Yellen or Chad Bernstein um, and my boss, actually, C.C. Rose, um, are very deeply committed um, to these issues. So, and I... I've, Changed my tune a little bit on this. I mean, for some time I've been saying these big issues are not really very amenable <laughs> to um, a change of whose hands are on the steering wheel sort of idea. But given the incredibly horrible things that have gone on under Donald Trump, I come to believe that, um, you know, getting rid of Donald Trump is more than cosmetic. Um, it really will just make a huge difference not to have that torrent of lies and racial stoking 
um, and white supremacy um, sort of coming out of the White House. So that, I think, will make an enormous difference. There are, of course, great difficulties in handling these issues. I mean, the Democratic Party is nowadays an alliance um, between educated professionals on the one hand and minorities on the other. The white working class that used to be the backbone of the Democratic Party no longer really supports them in significant numbers and has gone over to the other side. So that if the crucial inequality divide is between working class people or less educated people and this educated elite, then the Democratic Party is not always in the best position um, to really do something about that or have people really care about it. So that, for instance, Hillary Clinton was certainly seen as the antithesis um, by the people who voted for Donald Trump, many of whom were less educated um, whites. Um, and I don't think they're going to be very enthusiastic about Joe Biden either. The one of them, that, the ones of them that haven't retreated into a fantasy world of conspiracy theories, and goodness knows all what else. So it's a very volatile and very difficult situation. We've no idea what will happen to the Republican Party as a result of what's happened in the last few weeks. And I guess that I mean there are certainly some parallels there with what we've seen in the UK over the last couple of decades, where. Um, We've certainly seen a, a serious movement away from the um, class basis of political voting with um, you know, working class voters now no more likely to be voting Labour than Conservative and to some degree actually more likely to be voting um, Conservative. I suppose there's an interesting question for us as to whether that will change the politics of the Conservative Party, which came in promising this um, rather uh, unclear um, thing called levelling up, uh, an idea to get the poorer regions and particularly the north doing um, better relative to London and the uh, London and the south, but with frankly no nothing approaching a clear plan for how to do it. And indeed, I don't think anything approaching a clear appreciation of the scale of what they might want to achieve, particularly if they're really looking at making a big difference to. Uh, the relativities between local areas. It's interesting here, actually, that the um, that the pandemic has, if anything, um, had a bigger effect in some of the better off areas than, than, than elsewhere, economically at least. The biggest job losses have been in London um, as a fraction of the workforce because such a large fraction of the London workforce is involved in tourism, entertainment, retail, hospitality, and so on. And I think people forget uh, that actually there's a very big, very low-paid workforce um, in London, and the most inequality um, is within regions rather than uh, rather than between. Absolutely, and the same I think is happening here. I mean, you know, the the pandemic, of course, came to the along the trade routes in the first place. So you've got places like um, New York and New Jersey, which were very badly hit in the first wave. And that's been less so, and it's spreading elsewhere. But it's certainly true that um, you know the, the most inequality is within places, not between places, and that's always a bit of a problem if if you chart it by looking across areas um, rather than looking across individuals. Somehow. And certainly, um, I mean, again, the big divide here is associated very directly with uh, with, with education. If you look at average earnings. Uh, in different um, areas, you can explain a very large fraction of the differences by looking at education levels in those 
areas. If you transplant a highly qualified graduate from one area uh, to another, there, um, you know, they 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 will tend to keep a large fraction of their salary. Um, so there's there's big big issues there. And what, one of the things that I think worries some of us, particularly about the pandemic, is the impact on education. We're in the UK now, one week into the third lockdown, but the second time that schools have effectively completely closed. Um, we know that first time round, it was children from poorer backgrounds who got the worst deal. They were much less likely to get online teaching. Uh, they were often not able to access the internet or have a good place to work. And we know there's a huge divide between the public and private sector, state schools and private schools in the kinds of um, in, in the kinds of support that was offered. And we know, of course, that we went into this with big social divides in terms of the fractions of children from different backgrounds achieving uh, at, uh, at, at, at the levels required to get them on into successful uh, successful jobs. I presume you've seen something similar in the US, but I've not seen anything, any analysis of that. Um, I haven't looked at the formal analysis either, but I'm sure it's the case. And we know that exactly what you said is happening here too, that kids you know, who don't have internet access or kids who live in households where um, the parents are trying to hold down two or three jobs and may not be very interested in their kids' education um, so that um, they're not prepared to supervise them or even able um, to get them connected up. There are stories of mothers taking their kids to hotel rooms. <laughs> if you know what it's like, we've all had this experience of sitting in a hotel room with the slowest internet you've ever seen in the world. <laughs> if you can imagine kids um, trying to do that. But this worries me enormously. And I think this is one, perhaps the most obvious place where the scars are going to be really permanent um, because all of our evidence suggests that if you have interruptions to schooling at crucial stages, you know, you miss the day in which they did multiplication or something, then that stays with you um, the rest of your life um, and you really miss out forever. And I don't know whether we'll be able to repair some of that um, exposed, you know, once the pandemic's over. And certainly it does prioritize investments in internet technology, making sure that that becomes a basic service like water supply or something of the sort that everybody has. But it's also a problem for people entering the labor market for the first time, I think. And there's quite a lot of evidence that if you come into the labor market um, at, in a bad time, then your wages are permanently depressed and may never um, really catch up. And we certainly see that <laughs> close to home with looking at the um, PhD students graduating from Princeton this year who are looking for jobs. I mean, their estimate seems to be that about only one-sixth of the number of jobs for next year that there would be in a normal year. And so who knows what those people are going to do. I guess that's a very particular uh, example of a much bigger issue. I mean, I, I suppose I'm, I'm quite concerned uh, about the impact on generational um, inequalities that this, uh, this, this uh, pandemic is going to potentially exacerbate. I mean, clearly, those children at school who are not getting as much education as they should be is, is one issue. But I think more generally, with the extremely, we, we, we've got two, two, two or three aspects of this, I think, 
also, as you say, those entering the labour market are really struggling. We know that younger people who are much more likely to be working in the sort of hospitality and similar sectors are much more likely to have lost their jobs than um, uh, than older workers. But with uh, we've also seen this huge um, increase in uh, quantitative easing in very you know, interest rates taken down to essentially zero uh, and therefore a support of asset prices effectively, uh, which in the end is on average beneficial for the older and wealthier generation than for the younger. And certainly in the UK makes uh, getting onto the housing ladder potentially even more difficult. And I think if there's one sort of macro mistake that the British government's made after 2010, it was to have fiscal policy, which moved in the same direction as monetary policy. In other words, monetary policy was clearly favouring those who already had assets. Uh, and fiscal policy did the same uh, by protecting uh, the uh, the older generation and um, austerity really hit the younger generation uh, harder. I think one of the things we really ought to be looking to uh, is, is fiscal policy over the next several years that leans against that effect rather than leans in the same direction. We're very envious of you being able to do fiscal policy at all as part of the <laughs> issue. <laughs> if you can imagine um, uh, the um, Congress here where, you know, rioters are threatening to hang the vice president and they're hiding under their desks, um, is only the most extreme case of a, a legislature, which was the idea that it would pass sensible fiscal policy um, under the divisions that we have right now. And the, you know, so, you know, we've had this dominance of monetary policy because the Fed has been um, untrammeled by those sort of disasters. So some of the politicians would really like to rein the Fed in and stop giving it that power on the grounds that it's non-democratic, which is in some sense um, true. Um, and so I, I think that's really been a problem. But one thing we have that um, you don't have to anything like the same extent um, is the stock market. Um, so our stock market at the end of the year, um, the Dow was over 31,000, um, which is way ahead. It's about 10, more than 10% higher than it was on the eve of the pandemic. So what the pandemic has done is elevated the stock market. Now, sure, they're very low interest rates, zero interest rates, all the rest of it. And where else are people going to make their money? But there's something else going on here. And what's going on here, of course, is that tech, big tech, has become enormously more valuable. And what's driving that stock market rally is largely the shares of the big tech um, companies. But it's meant that the things we've been talking about, you know, with people like us sitting at home or talking to each other on Zoom and so on, um, many of us who now have um, defined contribution pension schemes are getting rich in, in ways that we'd never imagined um, would be possible because our pensions, the, the amount we have in our pension funds has gone through the roof. Um, and of course, at the very top, um, the estimates are the sort of 10 richest people in the world uh, have made an extra trillion dollars during this pandemic. You know, Jeff Bezos himself has made about another 80 billion on top of the more than 100 billion he had to start with. I mean, these themes seemed unimaginable as levels. And now these are extra, you know. So uh, there's this extraordinary explosion of wealth 
not just at the very top, but among this educated elite who, you know, have defined um, contribution pension schemes. So if you happen to be owning assets uh, when this started, um, then you've done very well indeed. I mean, that's um, something we've uh, we've seen here over a period of time. It's, it's I suppose, equivalent to or similar to um, period back from 2008. If you happen to be a homeowner in 2008, you've done really very well um, over the last decade. If you happen not to be, then you've be, found it much harder to get into the housing market. Indeed, we've had something like a halving the fraction of young people who are homeowners compared with 25 years ago. What you're talking about, of course, is even more dramatic at the top of the distribution. And you're also talking about this kind of increased wealth and potentially power of this uh, of the big tech companies. Do you, do you worry that one of the things that this pandemic may have done is to lead to or perhaps accelerate a, a world in which um, you, we, we move toward... We have more market power for a very small number of um, companies, and we lose some of the benefits of some of the competition on which um, you know a successful democratic or capitalist society um, is built. I mean, is this going to hasten uh, you know return to the uh, period of 120 years ago when uh, monopolies were uh, able to be incredibly powerful? I think it will certainly provoke a reckoning of that. And that just in the last few days, after all, I mean, when Twitter and Facebook and Amazon basically took away Donald Trump's voice and took away the platform on which the rebellion was based, um, people are people like me are, you know, and people who read the quality newspapers, um, people are delighted that that's happened but on the other hand, they're made incredibly uncomfortable by the power of those giants to silence um, the president of the United States and other people that they want to be able to silence. And I think the view from Europe, which has been, I think, singularly misinformed. I mean, it was Angela Merkel was saying yesterday that, um, you know, what America needs is for the government to control hate speech. The First Amendment to our Constitution prevents the government from controlling hate speech. So the hate speech laws you have in Europe uh, would be immediately struck down here as unconstitutional, which is very odd because then Twitter and Amazon and um, Facebook have the ability to police hate speech, um, which the state does not have at all. So those issues... Um, are even, and of course, there were enormous issues before that of the amount of information that those companies have. Um, they're giving us wonderful services in many cases for very little money, um, but it seems like we're paying a very large price for that. And that reckoning is certainly going to happen. And what's happened here in the last few days will certainly accelerate that um, reckoning because people on the left and right are both incredibly upset about the power of those companies to do what they've done. What might a reckoning look like? Well, I think it's going to be, it's very unpredictable. I mean, I think, you know, what happens <laughs> um, may be sensible, it may not be sensible. And that's where it's probably important that we have um, Joe Biden and a bunch of relatively sensible people or sensible people, not even relatively sensible people, <laughs> in Washington, as opposed to a bunch of grifters who are stealing stuff 
um, and just um, enriching themselves and their cronies. Um, having people in charge of that discussion will make a tremendous difference, but it's very unclear um, what is going to happen. You know, and you gave the example of the trusts in, you know, more than 100 years ago. And, um, you know, and that gave rise to really positive things. So that there was a real attempt um, by the government and uh, the people to rein in um, inequality in various ways. So that, for instance, the um, regressive movement, they actually got four amendments to the Constitution um, in the early years of the 20th century, all of which were aimed at reducing inequality. The most infamous of those was prohibition, <laughs> um, which banned alcohol. But alcohol was seen as an inequality issue. It was seen as something that gave enormous power to men over women. And it was the strongest supporters of prohibition were the various women groups who wanted out from under this yoke. But the Federal Reserve was established, the income tax was established, and those required not just laws, but changes to the Constitution, and those were actually carried out. There were electoral reforms too. The senators used to be appointed not by election at all, but by state legislatures, you know, who were owned by local businesses and interests. Um, and that, uh, that required a constitutional change too. So the beginning of the 20th century is certainly an example of something that can happen, that you can get people so upset and so feeling that there's need for reform and they're being abused, that they did relatively sensible things. Prohibition turned out not to be a very good idea. Um, but imagine the US without a Federal Reserve today or without an income tax, um, and with you know the, the, the senators appointed corruptly by local businessmen, um, I mean, maybe we get some of that back again, but, um, you know, at least there were reforms. So it's certainly possible to do that. Um, but predicting it in the current maelstrom is sort of a fool's errand. Well, perhaps that's a, a positive note on which to begin to draw this uh, conversation to a close. And I suppose the um, you know one thing we've certainly learned over the last year here in the UK and across the world is the extraordinary capacity actually of governments to do things which were previously unimaginable. I mean, here in the UK, we've had the government paying the wages of millions at some point, eight or nine million private sector workers. We've uh, had enormous amounts of money spent on supporting the public services. We've had increases in welfare benefits that we've not seen in um, in 50 years. And we've had uh, a big uh, big uh, public pressure for more support for uh, particularly poor children, and in terms of making sure they've got the kinds of meals that they uh, that they need. Um, so we've had an incredibly activist um, government over this period, um, and as you say, uh, sometimes these crises, um, this uh, this concern about the. Uh, inequality of power as much as anything else can drive big political change and can drive us in in positive directions. Now, of course, there's nothing historically certain uh, about um, any of that. And there are lots of reasons for being perhaps uh, sceptical about the scope for that kind of change over the next few years. But I think it is part of our um, purpose in to come back to where we started doing the you know, huge amount of work that you and we are doing on inequalities 
at the moment to look at ways in which uh, we can understand and then do something about some of the problems that we've been discussing. And if uh, we started out on this journey um, before anyone had ever heard of COVID or um, uh, this pandemic, and I think we've been um, more than uh, justified in doing that by the consequences of what we've seen over the last year and some of the opportunities as well as problems uh, that are going to be brought up by that. So, so Angus, uh, Dean, thanks so much um, uh, for that. Um, and hopefully we can have you on again in a, a year or so's time when we hopefully have some more answers to some of these questions as we progress with, uh, progress with our work. Well, the rate at which the world is changing, you, know, you probably have to lean on me every couple of weeks to catch up with the horrible new things, so the good new things that have happened in America. But it is a very exciting time in the way you say that policy space, the ability, those policies that can be considered are much wider than they were just a year ago. And that's got to be good. So thank you very much. I really enjoyed talking. Well, thank you. And I think that was a promise to come on once every two weeks. So we'll, <laughs> we'll see you soon. Okay, thanks, Paul. (laughs) Brilliant, that was brilliant. Thanks ever so much. Thank you for listening. For all our latest work, please visit www.ifs.org.uk. And to further support our work, please consider becoming a supporter of the IFS for as little as just £5 a month. You can find a link with further information in the episode description. Thank you for listening and stay well.